Over the past several weeks, if you haven't been with us, um, we've been looking at ways in which church can be at its worst. A couple of weeks ago, we began this uh, short three-week series talking about the issue of deceit and dishonesty in the church, and we looked at the story of Ananias and Sapphira there in Acts chapter 5. Um, and then last week, we looked at the issue of quarreling within the church, and we talked about the situation regarding Paul and Barnabas and their dispute over John Mark and how that was reconciled. Um, the Bible is, is honest about these things, about the, the issues that the Christian church has had even from the beginning. Um, things that need to be addressed in order for the church to continue to, to be and do the things that the church is called to be and to do. The church's witness and the very integrity of the gospel message is at stake when it comes to these things. These are not light or, or small issues to be concerned with. These are things that we need to pay attention to. And perhaps nowhere else is this more clear than with this morning's final topic of the series, and that is the topic of hypocrisy. Can you think of a more common <laughs> accusation against Christians than that? I don't know about your exact world or sphere that you find yourself in, but uh, over the years, I, as I've heard various forms of criticism about Christianity or the church, uh, oftentimes hypocrisy kind of takes center stage in those accusations. And to be sure, a lot of those accusations are unfair. Those are uh, claims that are uh, based in some other, I don't know, maybe people are looking for an excuse for their own lack of belief or their lack of participation in church life. And so hypocrisy becomes sort of like the default accusation that sort of absolves them of, of, of their own conscience. Um, so sure, much of it is unfair, but not all of it is unfair. We have to be honest about that. And that is certainly the case with the passage that we're going to be uh, looking at here this morning. If you want to uh, turn your Bibles, if you've grabbed a Bible from the back, we're on uh, page um, 889, Acts chapter 15 is the chapter we're going to be in there in Acts as we've been working our way through that book. Um, I'm also going to, going to invite you, if you have a Bible um, and, a, and a finger to spare, that you also put a thumb on Galatians chapter 2. So we're going to be in Acts 15, but here in a little bit we're going to jump over to Galatians chapter 2. That's on page 938 if you're looking for where that is in your guest Bible. That's where that is. Uh, but here in Acts chapter 15, we're going to be looking at the council at Jerusalem, a watershed moment in the life of the Christian, in the history of the Christian church. We made reference to it last week. I told you we'd be back here this week, and I'm trying to be a man of my promises. So here we are. Uh, and before we dive into the text, I want to give just a little bit of summary of some of the events that were leading up to this moment so you have a little bit of context. So last week, we were talking about Paul and Barnabas and their what we call their first mission, Paul's first missionary journey. They went through the, the region of Asia Minor. They, they crossed over the Mediterranean Sea. They evangelized uh, churches there, and they returned the way they came and back to Antioch. And, and their journey and their ministry was stirring up all sorts of questions among uh, the, the Christians in Jerusalem, those Jewish converts to Christianity. Uh, but their mission was really the last or not the last, but at least the next one of a sequence of events that had to do with, with sort of Gentile-related issues um, that took place over several years, beginning all the way back um, in Acts chapter 10, where you might recall the story of Peter, who was having a vision. And in his vision, God was challenging him and his notion of what he should consider clean and what he should consider unclean. As a Jewish man, that was a very important issue for, for him theologically and practically in how he lived his life. 
And the result of that vision and the, and the leading of the Spirit in his life, Peter left and went into the home of Cornelius in Caesarea, who, of course, was not, he was not a Jew. He was a God-fearing Gentile. And as a result of that encounter, his whole household came to faith, and they were baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit. So this is a radical moment in, in the life of the church. In the initial response of Jerusalem there in chapter 11, verse 2, when they heard that he had entered into a Gentile's house, was outrage. Like, what was he thinking? We don't do that kind of thing. Those people are unclean. We don't enter into their homes. We don't have that type of connection or contact or fellowship with those people. And yet, once Peter explained what had happened, it says in verse 18 that they stopped objecting and began praising God. So you see, something new is happening in the life of the Christian church. But later in chapter 11, you have another group of, of unnamed missionaries who had begun in Jerusalem to, to be a part of the church, but as persecution had grown following the, the situation with Stephen, and at the time, you know, Saul was, was wreaking havoc, and, and uh, because of the persecution that was growing, the church was expanding and branching out of its comfort zone. And here we have in chapter 11, some unnamed missionaries be, who began preaching to the Greeks and a great number of people began believing. And the response of Jerusalem was, well, we need to investigate this. What has happened? Okay, we heard about what happened with Peter, this sort of one-off, at the, at the moment, very isolated, one-time kind of thing. But now we're hearing reports of, of other types of things that aren't associated with Peter. What is going on? So they sent out Barnabas to go and investigate. And when he saw the things that the Lord was doing, it says there in chapter 11, verse 23, that he rejoiced at the things that he witnessed. So this is the type of thing that's happening leading up to this first missionary journey that chapters 13 and 14 are all about. This journey of Paul and Barnabas preaching throughout Asia Minor, culminating in the report there in chapter 14, verse 27, that God had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. So you see, this movement, which started as a trickle, these one-off sort of sporadic, random almost unexpected types of things where Gentile, non-Jewish people are coming to faith in, in Christ Messiah, this trickle began gaining momentum, and now by the time we get to chapter 15, it's become a raging torrent. What do we do with this? What, what, how are we supposed to, to deal with this new reality? Because the question that the Jerusalem church was wrestling with was, how does God intend for these Gentile believers to come into, to be incorporated into the faith community. And their initial assumption, what, you can't blame them for it because that's all they ever knew. But their initial assumption was, well, they come into the community through circumcision and obedience to the law. Makes perfect sense for a Jewish Christian, doesn't it? But over and over and over again, non-Jewish people were being welcomed into the community of faith through baptism without circumcision. They were becoming Christians without also becoming Jews. And they retained their own identity as members of other nations and people groups. And so the question that is, that is rising to this sort of climax in this all-important decision among the, the leaders and the elders and the, the representatives there in Jerusalem was, can, can we accept conversion without circumcision? Can, can we accept faith without works of the law? Can we accept a commitment to Messiah apart from inclusion in Judaism? Can the church of Christ be 
an international community instead of a Jewish sect. And so you have the Council at Jerusalem, which is a turning point, not just in the book of Acts, but in all of church history, and I would say even human history. And Luke will signal this shift if you're reading through Acts and you're, you started from the beginning and you're following the story and you see who the main, the main, the main characters are and the main areas that, that the activity is taking place in, you'll see this shift happen at 15. And what happens in 15 changes the trajectory of the entire letter and it, and it goes a different direction from this point on. Up until this point, you know, people like Peter take center stage, but Peter's never mentioned after chapter 15 again. He's no longer the central figure according to Luke's perspective and what he's trying to tell in his narrative here. It's not Peter that takes center stage, it's Paul. Paul takes center stage from chapter 15 on. The events aren't aren't any longer going to be concerned with what's going on in Jerusalem, but what's going on in Europe and in Asia and in in that broader world there that they knew. And so, things are changing here in, in the book of Acts. It is here at the Council of Jerusalem where the gospel is liberated from its Jewish clothing. And and it goes from being a message for this small group of people in this very isolated region to becoming a message for all of humankind. And the Jewish Gentile church is given a self-conscious identity as one reconciled body. Yes, reconciled to God, individuals reconciled to God, but also peoples reconciled to one another. But it didn't come easy. It didn't come easy. So turn with, your, with me into your Bibles there to Acts chapter 15. I'm going to start by just reading the first two verses here. This is right before the council is convened. It says, while Paul and Barnabas were still up at Antioch of Syria, or down, the, the scriptures always say down to Antioch, which to our sensibilities doesn't make sense because Antioch is north, but in terms of elevation, it's down. So it, down to Antioch, and also even theologically, you know, Jerusalem is the, the center of, of God's presence on the earth and everything else is below. Uh, but I'm going to say up in Antioch because, well, I'm an American and everything should be American, right? So he's, they're up north in Syria at Antioch. Some men from Judea arrived and began to teach the believers, unless you are circumcised as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. Wow. Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them, arguing vehemently. Finally, the church decided to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, accompanied by some local believers, to talk to the apostles and elders about this question. So, one thing that is common among the messages that I've preached the last few weeks, and including today, is that over and over again in the scriptures, you can see in the life of God's people, whenever there's this great moment of triumph or victory or success, whenever there's a genuine movement of God and the people are rejoicing and there's unity among the people and, and, and the, the church seems to be marching, you know, in this, this, this victorious, triumphant, you know, way. Whenever this happens, well, the enemy does what he does and tries to bring some type of disruption and disunity. And that's what we see here. We see this, this high point in the life of the church is suddenly brought into chaos. And what is, seems to be very clear begins to get a little muddy. What, what seems to be something that everyone is in agreement with, well, now we're not so sure. And the report of Paul and Barnabas and their, their journey and the things that they've done 
and the ensuing peace and unity in Antioch as a result of this report was disrupted by these men who came from Judea. We know from later in the, the chapter in verses 5 and verses 20, they're, they're described as a sect of the Pharisees who had believed in Christ. So these are Christian people. They're, they're Jewish Pharisees who had accepted Christ and had been converted, and yet they remained zealous for the law. So they're not so much opposed to Gentile mission or even Gentile conversion. That's not the problem. And we, we miss what they're saying if we view them as them saying, we want nothing to do with Gentiles at all. Gentiles are to be avoided. That's sort of the old way, the old way of thinking before Christ, wasn't it? No, they recognized through the ministries of Paul and these other missionaries who'd gone out and the reports they received that God had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles and Gentiles were coming into the, into the belief in Christ. But their, their problem was, it wasn't so much a problem with Gentiles, but their demand that Gentiles be circumcised and then remain obedient to the law of Moses. And this debate struck right at the very heart of the gospel message. It's, it's a genuine question that you and I, maybe not in the exact form that it took at the time, but in some form or fashion, you and I have to wrestle with the same kind of question. Is there anything that you and I need to add to the gospel? Is there anything that the gospel lacks? Because what they were essentially saying is, yes, faith in Christ, but faith in Christ plus something else. Yes, we come to Jesus and by grace we're saved through faith and circumcision and obedience to the law. It's sort of a Jesus plus mentality. And my question for you, the first question that I'm going to ask you this morning is, is is faith in Jesus really enough? Or have you in some, some way in your own life added anything to the gospel? Is there anything else necessary to be saved? And that's a question for individuals. It's a question for whole churches. It is a question for whole denominations. What do we add to the gospel as a condition for salvation? Is Jesus enough? Or do we need to complete what is lacking? And how they answered that question and how you and I answer that question has massive implications, not only for the church's understanding, but even its communication of the very way of salvation itself. Now, maybe we don't see the significance of it in their day. Maybe it's because we are on the other side of history, and we know how this issue was resolved and how it has been lived out and understood and taught and communicated for two millennium. But at the time, it was, well, it was significant. And the debate that took place wasn't without its casualties. So with that in mind, I told you earlier to to keep a finger on uh, Galatians chapter 2. I want you to turn there now. And we're going to look at uh, some things Paul had to say. He's writing to the churches in this letter that he he and Barnabas had evangelized and established in their first missionary journey. That's who he's writing to here. Perhaps he's even writing this on his way down (laughs) to Jerusalem. That, that's a, a very valid uh, idea that, that in trying to talk about the timing and the context of when Paul is writing this, it is very likely that he was writing this between what he's going to talk about that happened in Antioch and then hit, and on his way to Jerusalem to settle this discussion. Okay? So in chapter 2, 
uh, it begins with a previous time that he had been in Jerusalem, probably around the time that he was delivering the, re- the relief to the poor there during the time of famine. He talks about how he met with the leaders there and he told them about his Gentile mission and how they were just all for what he was doing, encouraging and affirming and, and just telling him, yes, con- continue this work. Just don't forget to, to you know, minister to the poor. And Paul says, well, I've always ministered to the poor, so there's no problem there. But that leads us up to what he says here in verses 11 through 13. Look at what he says there. He says, but when Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face for what he did was very wrong. When he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile believers who were not circumcised. But afterward, when some friends of James came, that is from the the Jewish center of Christianity in Jerusalem. When some friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. And as a result, other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy. And even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Man, isn't the power of peer pressure amazing? Isn't it just shocking the things that people will do or not do depending on who's watching or who we're with? Apparently, even Peter wasn't impervious to the temptation to to be fake, to be two-faced, or to act one way towards one group and another to another. What's just remarkable to me, though, is, is, the, is the way that he's hypocr- hypocritical. I mean, this is the same Peter who was responsible for the first Gentile conversion. He was the one that went into the house there at, at Caesarea of Cornelius, the, 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 the dirty, non-Jewish, unclean person. He was the one that went into there. He is the one that shared the gospel. He's the one that baptized him and his whole household, and they reported back to Jerusalem. That a decision that established a precedent that would give shape and direction to all of the church's Gentile mission going forward. Peter, who upon coming to Antioch, Paul says, enjoyed fellowship with the Gentile converts there, despite knowing they were uncircumcised. A fellowship that almost certainly included the breaking of bread and the sharing of wine over the Lord's Supper. A, a picture of lives reconciled to God and to one another. That's why we call it communion. The thing that God is working in the world to restore among people. Peter enjoyed that with Gentile converts only to turn his back on them when the friends of James show up. Don't think for a second that the the reason Peter changed his mind or changed his behavior was by the power of their theological arguments. No, I think Peter changes mind. Peter changes behavior because of the pressure of their relationship. It says it right there. That he was concerned, afraid of their criticism. My suspicion is that Peter didn't want to lose face with the leaders at the Jerusalem church. And when pressed, <laughs> that's a key word here and a key concept here this morning, when pressed, his true colors were exposed. And what were those colors? Well, I don't think it was hatred of Gentiles. 
I don't think that's why Peter was afraid. I don't think that's why Peter changed. Because, well, really beneath, he really hated non-Jewish people. I don't think that was what's coming out of, what's bleeding out of him as he's pressed. I think it's the, his, his love for his own renown and his love for his own respectability among his peers. I think that's what's the motivating force here behind his hypocrisy. And so Paul calls him out. You're saying one thing, but then you're being and doing something else. You know, it's not unlike the Pharisees, is it? You know, Jesus made, made a habit of, of charging hypocrisy on the Pharisees. Those ones he says in Matthew 15, 8, that Isaiah was talking about when he said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Because for the Pharisee, it was all about the external appearance, wasn't it? It was all about what people perceive of me. It was all about me doing the things that look respectable or the things that look right. It's maintaining sort of the facade. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago when we talked about the issue of deceit and dishonesty. It was all about their own self-righteous prestige. What What does the world think about my presentation instead of what does God think about my heart? And I don't see Peter, in this particular instance of his life, as being really all that different from from them. He's basically concealing when he shows up and he's, you know, enjoying this this time of fellowship with these Gentile Christians. He's he's sort of concealing really what's beneath a, a mask, basically. It's like he's wearing a mask and, and he's got this presentation, but there's something beneath that isn't so lovely or, or pleasant to look at. And it's, it's hard when you see people that you look up to and people you respect and people who are leaders of the church who give a, a, a nice presentation for this group of people only to give something different for this group of people. To say and do things in, in the presence of, of this group, but to be and do something different for another And for Peter, it was his fear of criticism, but that's just one of the many motivating factors behind Christian hypocrisy, isn't it? What are some of the other things that cause people to behave in this way? Well, fear of criticism. For others, it's perhaps their own vanity or their inflated ego. Maybe they have an overestimated sense of their own value or virtue. They think think a lot of themselves and they want everyone else to think a lot of them. Perhaps for others, it's a love of the world. Maybe a a concern or a care for the things that are temporary instead of the things that are eternal. And so they know how to say the right things. They know the right times to show up at church. They know the right vocabulary. And yet, in reality, beneath the mask, all they care about is the next paycheck. Or the next raise, or the next promotion, or the next thing that that builds them up in their kingdom and their values and their concerns, the things that they really care about at the level of the heart, that's what they really are motivated about. It's not the other stuff, and yet they maintain the mask for you and me in the world. All of these things, whether it's fear of criticism or your own ego or, or, or concern for the things of the world or whatever other sinful motivation that lies behind us being fake and hypocritical, whatever the, the, the cause of those things is, well, the effect is always the same, isn't it? 
It may have various motivations behind being fake or phony or living by double standards or being arrogant or judgmental or condemning or expecting people to live by a standard that you're not willing to live by. There's all sorts of, of motivations behind that, but at the end of the day, the effect is the same. You see, the hypocrite knows how to look the part, don't they? Like the actor that shows up and has the costume. I know how to dress the part. But the hypocrite may look the part, but they don't smell the part. They don't smell the part. And I don't mean their body odor. Because the truth is, as with everybody, the true fragrance of our lives will eventually be smelled especially when squeezed, especially when the pressure's on. It took the presence and the pressure of the people from Jerusalem to press out what was really inside of Peter. He had it all under control up in Antioch until those guys showed up. And in the same way, our our own true colors, what really lies in the heart, what is really inside, what is beneath us, will come out when the pressures are applied. And the question is, how will we smell then? We may look the part, but what what will the fragrance of our lives be and who will it affect? Peter's hypocrisy as a leader of the church had serious influence on those who looked up to him. And Paul indicates that as well in his text. Look in verse 13 there. He says, As a result of his behavior, other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy. People that looked up to him. People that sought him for counsel and leadership and to be an example. And in their minds, his behavior justified their own. Well, if Peter does this, then I should be doing it. It just confirms my own sense of what I think. I know what everyone's saying, and I know I'm supposed to play the part, but, well, Peter said, well, Peter's an authority. Other believers followed him, and even Barnabas himself was swept off balance by it. Man, that's, that's big stuff right there. Barnabas, Barnabas himself, the one who was with Paul and that, that all-important first missionary journey. You see, left unchecked, Peter's fear of man-induced hypocrisy would have had massive consequences for the, the progress and the integrity of the gospel message. That gospel message that says, all people, regardless of their history, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of their, their, their condition and history of sin, regardless of that, all people are loved by God. All people come to him on equal terms by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. As we've been saying, God isn't just seeking to save individuals. God is forming a new covenant community that is made up of people of all stripes and all colors and all backgrounds reconciled to him and to one another. And Peter's behavior threatened it all. Now, it just so happens that Peter's particular example of hypocrisy here 
affected the very heart of the gospel message. And so because of that, it's in the scriptures. We point to it and we, we draw attention to it because it had such you know, sweeping implications. But really, don't all examples of Christian hypocrisy at some level affect the heart of the gospel message? It's easy to, to, look, to judge you know, Peter and, and hold him up as this terrible example of how you don't act, um, but are we so willing to point the fingers at ourselves? As if his sin was really bad, mine's not so bad. I have all sorts of justifications for mine. You know, I have a different situation than Peter. You know, or I'm not the pastor. I'm not in front of everybody, so it's not as big of a deal that I'm a little fake at times or a little phony or that I have ulterior motives or that I give a presentation here, but I'm someone else here. But at the end of the day, any form of being untrue or fake in the eyes of God and in the presence of of those in the world, all of it undermines the heart of the gospel message. And it threatens to divide the church. It's amazing to me how people think, they think about their own sins in such isolated ways that the things, the areas where I fall short or the, or the bad things that I choose to be and do, those only impact me. And so I'll just kind of, I'll deal, it's between me and God. God and I will work it out. I'll go and say this sort of prayer that I recite every time I mess up. But it doesn't really in, impact anybody else. And I would say that's dead wrong. Because at the very heart of your salvation, the very heart of the gospel is relationships with God and with each other. And when you sin, when you fall short, when you make those decisions, when you're fake, whatever it is, it doesn't just impact your vertical relationship, it always impacts your horizontal relationships. In the life, in the unity, in the well-being of the church is at stake, look in Galatians 2 for exhibit A. When one man, because of his, his hypocrisy, rooted in a concern for his re- prestige and his renown, made a decision that resulted in a fracture of relationships where a whole group of people would no longer have fellowship with another whole group of people. Hypocrisy always divides the church and pushes people away. And I'm here to tell you that the solution to it is more than simply ceasing to claim to be something you're not. Authenticity alone is not enough. And we live in an age when there's a movement, thankfully, I think a good one, towards being authentic. I think at, at heart, it's, it's something good. We don't want to be fake. I don't ever want to stand up here and present to be something that I'm not. Or walking through the worship center, or, or seeing people in the lobby, or passing you in the parking lot, or running into you at Food Lion or somewhere. I never want to be something for you that I'm, I'm not for someone else. And so, yes, authenticity is important. We want to be real. We want to be genuine. We want, we want to be sincere. But it's not enough to just remove the mask only for the world to just behold the real disgusting you beneath. That's not enough. It, if Peter was unmasked in this situation, and that's all that happened, would that have brought reconciliation to the people in the church? I don't, maybe, but I don't think so. It's not enough to just be exposed. We need to be exposed, but we need to be transformed. We need to be different beneath the mask. We need to be more of something that we're not. 
Yes, we need to be real in our humility and consistent with the things we say and we do. We need to make sure we're never holding people to some sort of standard that we're not living up to ourselves, of course. But the ultimate solution here, by the grace of God, is that we would allow him to transform us from the inside out in order to become everything that he created us to be. Yes, no more masks. Get, get rid of the masks in your life. Every way that you're fake, every way that you're phony, every way that you put a presentation up for people, get rid of it, absolutely. Authenticity is important and it should define your life, but that's not all. No, don't just get rid of the mask, but get rid of your vanity. Get rid of your self-centeredness. Get rid of your ego. Get rid of your, your bitterness or your resentment or your prejudice. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be someone who knows all the right things to say but is different at the level of the heart. I, I want it to be true that with me, and again, this is only by the grace of God that it's ever even possible in my life because I'm just as broken as the rest, but I want it to be true of me that what you see is what you get and by the way, it's what you smell. It's all the same. And God wants us to smell like his son. To be, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, a Christ-like fragrance rising up to God. It's not just taking the mask off. It's smelling like him. And the harder Jesus was squeezed the greater the love that came out. Isn't that interesting? Our suspicions of the true colors of Jesus at the beginning of the Gospels is only ever confirmed at the end. What's really under the, what's really under there? Despite all the claims people make about him, despite all the accusations, all the false things that everyone had to say about Jesus, the reality is that he always was who he was. He never faked it. He was never phony. He was only ever giving himself away in truth and love, and he confirmed it on the cross. At the moment of greatest pressure, it was the moment of his greatest love. And Paul says in Ephesians 5 2, live a life filled with that. May that be what oozes out of you as you're pressed by the world around you, as you undergo trials and, and different types of, of pressures in the world as you're falsely accused and as, as there's persecution coming down the pike in your life, as you go through those hardships in your life and things are hard and suddenly you don't have a choice but to be real, may what comes out of you then be what came out of him. Only ever. Truth and love. Live a life filled with that, following the example of Christ who loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. Does God need to do a work of grace in your life today that that could be said of you? Is the aroma that's coming out of your life a pleasing one to God? Or is it something toxic that pushes people away? Perhaps the question isn't, does God need to do that? But the question is, can he do that? 
Yes, in the sense of, is he able to do that? And I hope you say yes this morning. That yes, God is able to do a work in my life where I become like his son. The fancy word is sanctification. Can God sanctify me? Can he make me holy as he is holy, as, his, as the son has revealed his holiness to me by the power of his spirit? Can God do that? Theoretically, yes, we say yes. But in terms of will you allow him to do that is the question. Because it's not enough to just say, I assent to some sort of proposition about what God can do in theory. It's not theoretical. It's in your life. Will you let him have access to your heart? Will you let him unmask the real you? Will you let him, his light, expose your darkness and transform your darkness? Will you let that happen? Can he do that? Oh, friends, not only can he, but must he? Oh, how desperately we need God to do what only he can do at the, at the very core of who we are. Don't think for a second that God is unconcerned with whatever hypocrisies are present in your life. We don't just get some free pass. You know, pick your favorite bumper sticker. <laughs> You know, we, we, I like to criticize Christian bumper stickers. I've done it over the years. Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. I know what they're trying to say, but my goodness, what's, what's it actually saying? Disregard all the junk you see in my life, because God does. Does he? Does he? And should we expect others to? God is not unconcerned with the hypocrisies that are present in your life. Instead, he's working right now to root those things out. He's not trimming away the, the bad branches of your hypocrisy. He wants to dig in there and get every vestige of it out of your life. And he'll dig as deep as he can. He'll do it. And it, it can hurt. <laughs> but, but God's confrontation of these ways in which we're false or still in darkness or untrue in any way, those confrontations are never to crush. But they're always meant to convict and to restore. That's what I love about God. He's not here to crush you this morning. He wants to bring you to a place where you live real life, marked by genuine humility and repentance and faith. Not just enjoying the benefits of of his atonement, but submitting yourself to the, the totality of his lordship over every area of your life. I give it all to you. No matter how much it hurts, Lord, dig deep because you're the only hope I ever have of being the man or woman or boy or girl that you've called me to be. It's the only way I'll ever have real life. It's the only way I'll ever have real love is if you come and touch and root it out of me. I can't do it by myself. It is only by your grace at work in my life. He'll confront you. Maybe he's doing it right now. I don't know. He led Paul. He led Paul, didn't he? Man, I would have liked to have been a fly on that wall. And it wasn't a, I don't think it was a, a, a tight, a small interior room that you'd have to be a fly on the wall of when, when Paul confronted Peter. No, it says he confronted him publicly. Now, I hope it doesn't come to that for you. <laughs> I hope it doesn't come to that. But listen, if it does, no matter what form that it takes, listen, 
We've held Peter up as, as an example of what not to be, but I also want to hold him up as an example of what to be. Because in his pride or his ego or his concern with how he appeared to his peers, he very easily could have hardened his heart and dug in his heels and entrenched himself in his position. And I wonder if there's some of you here this morning, if confronted with any of this, if that's going to be your response or your posture. How dare you say that about me? Who are you to judge? You don't know my whatever. You don't know my heart. You don't know my life. There's some truth to that. There's also some truth that you can judge a tree by its fruit. And Paul saw the fruit of Peter's life, and he rightly discerned it, he rightly judged it, and he rightly rebuked it. And Peter could have very easily done the whole self-righteous thing that we tend to do when we're confronted with the ways we fall short, and dug his heels and said, mm you're not going to say that about me, but no, what does he do? I think he receives the rebuke and repents of his ways. It's one of the things I love. I love about the scriptures. It's not just the worst of church. It's the best of church. People who are genuinely correctable, who will receive criticism, who will receive rebuke, who, who recognize in, in their humility that they don't have it all together, that they are works in progress. And Peter sees Think, I, I would love to have been a fly on that wall to see the look on his face and the way he responded. I, I can only presume that it was something like, thank you. Thank you that you loved me enough to show me my errors and the impact of my self-centeredness upon the church and the destruction that I leave in the wake of my life. Thank you for caring enough for me, for caring enough about the other believers, for caring enough about Barnabas, for caring enough about Antioch, for caring enough about the world that you weren't willing to stand by and let me be the monster I was being. Thank you. I love that Peter was not impervious to mistakes, but that Peter was genuinely open to correction. Those are some of my most favorite people in all the world. Oh, there's something fragrant about a life like that who aren't all about themselves who don't live behind a wall or a mask but are open their lives are permeable you can genuinely go into their life and speak into it and they receive it not like some doormat to be walked all over but they receive it in humility and in truth I love that about Peter. And sometime later, in the presence of his peers, back in Acts 15, sometime later, in front of everybody, not just whatever collection of people were assembled there in Antioch with the handful of people who came up from Jerusalem, but in front of everybody, after this episode, Peter will stand up in front of everybody and what he says forever changes the course of history. Look in verse 6 there of chapter 15. The apostles and the elders met together to resolve this issue. And at the meeting, after a long discussion, Peter stood and addressed them as follows. Brothers, you all know that God chose me from among you some time ago to preach to the Gentiles so that they could hear the good news and believe. 
God knows people's hearts. And he confirmed that he accepts Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he cleansed their hearts through faith. So why are you now challenging God by burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear? We believe that we are all saved the same way by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. Now maybe you hear that now knowing the, the events that preceded it, and maybe you, it, you're tempted to think, wow, it sounds awful preachy from him, doesn't it? How dare he stand in front of everybody and say that? Well, he was one who was just corrected in front of many of these people not too long ago. So when I read his statement here, I'm not hearing anger, I'm not hearing accusation, I'm not hearing self-righteousness, I'm not hearing condemnation, I'm hearing a deep humility born out of true conviction. His mind, his heart was exposed and transformed and convinced. And he was going to step out in boldness even though it might mean some egg on his own face. Because he opens himself up to criticism, doesn't he? Peter, weren't you just up there doing that thing? Well, I was. I was. But God knows people's hearts and I can't fake it with him and I'm not going to try to fake it with you anymore. And he makes no distinctions. Something I once believed. Something I was once convinced of. But I lost my way. But I vow never to do it again. I will never make those distinctions again in my heart. And I am convinced. We are convinced. That there's only one way to be saved. Did you notice how he phrased the end there? Of what was that? uh, Verse 11. How are we saved? Oh the wording is so so on point by the not the grace not the grace of the Lord Jesus what kind of grace the undeserved grace do you hear the humility in this confession grace he says even for a hypocrite like me The hypocrisy of Peter's life, where his words conflicted with his deeds, brought division to the church and threatened to undermine the gospel in Antioch. But the transformation of Peter's heart, combined with the alignment of his words and his actions and his beliefs, resulted in a unified gospel message for all the world. And in the same way, church, when the Holy Spirit has access to your heart and when he transforms you into the likeness of Christ and all the masks are removed, he will use you. And the the sweet fragrance of your life, however pressed, and I would say especially and whenever pressed, to bring glory to God and reach the world with the gospel. He'll do it if you open yourself up to him. The worst of church or the best of church. There's hope yet for us today in God's grace that we can be all he's called us to be. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, I'm, I'm not often a fan of one person corporately 
confessing sins of many. I don't presume to know every person's heart here at all or the circumstances of their lives or the things that they've done or not done. But Lord, for anywhere that we have been untrue to you, to our spouses, to our friends, our neighbors, to the community, wherever we've been fake, wherever we've worn a mask or presented, made one presentation to to one group of people but been something else to someone else. Lord, for any of these sins, Lord, we, I hope those praying with me are joining me in this confession. We confess to you these things and we repent. We repent. We turn from it. We're convicted. We, know, we knew it was wrong, but now we know with a, a certainty what we've been and what we should be, and we know that it's only by your work in our lives that we can ever hope to be what you've called us to be. And so, Lord, in our repentance, we, we marry it with faith, trusting in the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus, not just to forgive us of past offense, but to cleanse and to renew and to transform Lord, I don't want to be fake, and I don't think anyone else here does. So help us this morning to, to put all of our lives into your hands, to open up all of ourselves for you to come in and have your way, rearrange what is wrong or false in me so that I can live a life that brings you glory and promotes the spread of your gospel to the ends of the earth. There's people who need it. People who need it. And you are the heart-knower You make no distinctions. So Lord, may we not make any either. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.